Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Paul from Women's Happiness Magazine and womenshappiness.com. And welcome to a very special program we're putting on today called How to Get a Man to Change. I want to welcome those of you who signed up to attend this live and let you know that if you're listening in by phone, I'll leave the lines open most of the time unless there's noise in the background. If I need to, I will mute everything. Uh, But you can still raise your hand by hitting star 2 on your phone uh, if you want to go ahead and do that if we need to mute it. Those of you who may be listening over the web uh, are at the link that you click that we send you once you sign up. And uh, it's through that link that you'll also see a chat box appear. And that's fair game to submit questions uh, during uh, this program that we can answer that will register on my dashboard screen. Okay, so that's a, a way you can communicate if you're not listening by phone, but just by web. Okay, first off, um, anybody on the line uh, that wants to tell me a little something about you know, why you're interested in this particular program or any information that you'll want me to steer toward uh, to help you specifically, now would be the, the time to go ahead and do that so that I can uh, guide things along in a, a tailored way for you. But then I'm going to go ahead and you know, present to you maybe some different ways of thinking about this topic uh, than maybe what you're used to or what you've heard before in the past. Okay. Well, um, first off, um, a lot of people, uh, when we think of, you know, how to change or get somebody else to change or or how to change ourselves, uh, if you're familiar with uh, uh, the medical model for that, uh, the psychiatric or therapy-based model for change, you may have heard in the past of uh, the stages of change. And... um, I'm not going to go that into um, the uh, formal stages of change because while they have been shown to be true, they're also really pretty obvious. And um, we want this to be highly practical to you. We want to do something very different from, you know, the old tired standard models out there. But you may have heard of these in the past if you've ever been involved with somebody or even a family member or a friend who was uh, seeking to produce some change in their life, um, especially in the areas of uh, addictions and alcoholism and gambling and things like this. Um, You know, any addiction uh, process, they often talk about the stages of change. uh, And it's about habits. So we are going to talk a lot about habits during this program, but not in the way that you're used to. We're going to get very practical. The classic uh, steps of change uh, that you hear about in the academic literature have to do with uh, progress through these steps versus relapse potential in these steps. And when you hear these, if you haven't before, they're going to seem very, very obvious to you. The first step is pre-contemplation. So that would be with somebody that doesn't even realize change would be good for them or change must happen or that they need to change. Pre-contemplation obvious 
uh, the next would be contemplation, which simply means they're now aware that change would be good for them and good for others or that they need to or have to. Contemplation, so pre-contemplation and contemplation. Preparation, also obvious. What would you need to get in order in your life uh, to start engaging in the process of, of change? Also obvious. And then finally, action. Uh, you have all your ducks in a row and you're going to make some changes in your life. If you're somebody who's ever uh, considered smoking, for example, uh, you might uh, realize that you need to quit or maybe the doctor told you you have emphysema. Um, now there's a, you know, a drive to do something because it's dangerous now. And then you prepare yourself. You throw away all the cigarettes, uh, you know, change your uh, habits of where you shop. Make sure you don't go anywhere near cigarettes, spend less time around smokers, and so forth. You've prepared, and then you set a date for when you're going to stop smoking, and then that's your action. Action starts on that day, right? And then there's one last classic step of change, and that's maintenance. Maintenance of the change you've made, where it needs to be reinforced and bolstered, okay? Well, those are obvious. I'm not going to say we're abandoning that model. Uh, but those steps are just so obvious. It's like saying that a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Of course it does. And of course these are steps of change or stages of change. But what exactly do they mean? And how can we have more of a practical, everyday, usable uh, system, uh, tools and steps, and solid science behind it that's actually going to make this real? You know, a big piece of this that we really have to start with um, at the very beginning here is uh, the concept of, first of all, why change a man and why would he want to change? Um, that's why the code to get in to this talk is the word voluntary in lowercase letters, voluntary. Because all relationships are voluntary. Uh, that really has to be our starting point. And that's going to have a lot to do with the importance of personal boundaries and how they work. But change is voluntary. Uh, whether you were a person who was going to change or uh, you're setting a, an agenda for yourself of changing a man, uh, the concept of changing somebody else who doesn't want to change is kind of a no-win situation from the get-go. Now, I'm going to offer you an alternative to this fantasy world, this unrealistic concept that uh, somebody can be forcibly changed. They cannot. It is voluntary. And just like our relationships are always voluntary, from our single days to boyfriend-girlfriend stage to a committed partnership into marriage, it is still voluntary that we are together. We're not together because of a contract we've signed called a marriage contract. That's just a legality. If we're together and we're in the psychological state called commitment, which is really what we're after when we use the word marriage, it's because we are there voluntarily. And if we're both there voluntarily, it's because something looked pretty good about being together. Well, that same principle is going to be at work whether you want to change or whether somebody that you love or you are with or that you know, you wish for them to change. Uh, they will have to voluntarily want to change, 
And the thing that ultimately is going to tip them over into doing that is that it is more appealing to do so than what they're already habitually doing. Okay? What about instead of sticking to these really vague general steps or stages of change that are obvious anyway, in the same way that uh, the three acts of a play uh, are obvious or that a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, that's obvious. Instead of thinking of these very vague stages of change, what if we thought more in terms of how could you um, advertise to or set an example for or influence or welcome or invite or offer to a man you care about that you would like him to change, you would wish that he would change, but to do so in a way in which it is enticing and convincing that it would be a better life than whatever he's doing right now. That would be the only way that it could work, the only way it could possibly work. And ultimately, that's because of the concept called personal boundaries. There are a lot of other programs that we have that we will be drawing from, and I'll explain the concepts as well you know, in a simple form, especially a program called Mind OS Mastery at womenshappiness.com backslash catalog. Uh, but in MindOS Mastery, and then a specialty course called Feminine Intelligence in Personal Boundaries, we go deep into this concept of what a boundary is. And if we can really uh, richly understand that concept of boundaries, then you'll see very clearly why all change is always voluntary, and the most we can ever do in appealing to another person to change is to advertise or invite or welcome them to perhaps influence them, but even influence is not at all the same thing as control. We never control another human being. We do control our choices in who to be partners with, however, and we control our choices in the type of person to partner up with. That's a whole a whole other matter entirely. Um, one of the things that in our relationship and uh, dating, attraction, and uh, romance programs uh, the Seven Sense program that we talk about is uh, that early on in dating and socializing, you know, perhaps in the first half hour to hour of knowing a person, it's a really crucial time period for us to try to learn a lot about the kind of person they are. And after that point, all kinds of other things can take root, like sexual attraction and passion and uh, friendship feelings that start to bond us together. But if we don't have a mindset for checking out the other person and vetting them very, very early on, we might be missing the boat and getting involved with somebody that all along was having aspects to them that just aren't compatible with us. And this can be one of them if the things you wish would change about the person, um, they are not voluntarily uh, invested in and not uh, influenceable by you to change. Sometimes that's uh, simple common things like being a smoker or a drinker or a gambler, um, addictive things. Um, sometimes it's other kinds of habits like lifestyle choices, uh, belief systems, somebody uh, of a very different uh, religious persuasion 
than yourself or cultural differences even that we don't bother to check out from the get-go and realize that they're going to be very, very important down the road and maybe unchangeable because the person um, gets more out of those than they would out of an alternative. Okay, so the importance of checking and vetting somebody early, early on before even getting involved. I'm assuming that a lot of a lot of women who come to this program do so because they are already involved in somebody. Otherwise, why would they want a particular man to change? Okay? What if instead of these stages of change or on top of them, we got more detailed and specific about everything and said, what would it be like for you to have some uh, higher level influence, uh, invitation, welcoming, empowering of a man to see the light, to see maybe a perspective you have that he doesn't, that maybe he hasn't considered, that might reveal a change would be a far better life and more pleasant and enjoyable and appealing than whatever he's now doing, uh, including whatever habits he now has. You might separate out some things. You might uh, make some labels and distinctions here. For example, what is it exactly that you would propose changing about a man? Is it just a habit or is it a style, a lifestyle? And is it something more external, uh, like one changes clothing, or is it something deeper than that, something that's more about one's personhood, okay? Um, for example, uh, things that you know obviously cannot be changed um, that would have to do with personhood would be something like one's height or um, potentially one's hair pattern, something physical about a person. We're born with what we're born with biologically, right? So we attain a certain height. Can't change our height. Intelligence, IQ, can't change that. Basic temperament or personality style, we can't change our temperament. We can expand our personality repertoire. And those of you who are familiar with the KWML personality system, are aware that uh, we do expand and grow and integrate um, and evolve uh, as far as the richness and maturity of our personality and its expression, that can be encouraged. But one's basic temperament can't be changed. You know, if somebody was born constitutionally, biologically, more of a shy person or more of a, a nurturing person or more of a doer, uh, can-do, ambitious, outgoing person, we're probably not going to change that about them. We might change how they communicate it, but it's still part of them, you know. An analogy to you would be, you know, if somebody asked you to change your height or somebody asked you to change your bone structure, something that's just part of you, it's who you are, that's not going to change, okay? So there are certain, um, you could call them deal breakers, if you like, um, barriers, um, impenetrable obstacles to change that we really ought to know about way ahead of time uh, before even trying uh, to influence, welcome, invite, or offer to help change men. Okay, so those things that are constitutional, that are part of one's 
um, personhood. Okay? Now, one of the most universal and important one of those that we have to highlight here because it's actually a, a gigantic obstacle not to the man but to women and perhaps to you that is constitutional in them, biological, inborn, um, has been around for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years and is never going away anytime soon, certainly not in our lifetimes, is a concept called masculinity. Uh, they're masculine instincts that are in men. And if you knew exactly what they were, um, there are 12 major ones and numerous other derivative ones, but they are prime core reflexes specific to men, built into all men, and they'll never go away. They are what they are, and they're constitutional. And what's very interesting about them is some women may want to change them and they are unchangeable. They can be pushed underground and buried, but they will rear their ugly heads in the ugliest ways if they are pushed underground like that instead of welcomed into the open. Um, and they, uh, at the same time that they w will not go away, they're simultaneously potentially your greatest influencers and greatest powers to actually produce change that is possible. I want you to underline that concept and maybe hear it again. Masculine instincts, they're very specific things that we learn about uh, to quite a degree in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the uh, Seventh Sense program on uh, dating and relationships for women in the area of romance. But we also cover them kind of encyclopedically in the Complete Feminine Empowerment program what are they? They're specific instincts unique to males that are evolved over eons of time. And on the man side of the equation, they helped keep our species alive, okay, as we went through the process of evolution. Just like on the woman side of things, feminine instincts helped keep our species alive. And those are unique to women. Well, these two sets of instincts cause men and women at a very primitive, unconscious animal level to have certain universal sensibilities in common with their same gender that they all understand and kind of speak to each other and influence, you know, the way we communicate to each other in general, in public and in private, okay? So it's a kind of man language, if you will, that arises from these masculine instincts but we have to remember that they uh, are inborn and constitutional. They're not going away. They're not candidate uh, for the change that you would wish in a man. Okay? One of these examples um, would be a tendency to uh, not, on average, there's always a bell curve of people. Okay, so there are exceptions to every rule far out on the bell curve. But in general, uh, on average in men, they'll tend to not be as emotive as women. They'll tend to not be as expressive of emotions. And there are very good and um, instinctual reasons for this. Uh, I like to use a model that's kind of crude, uh, but you know, metaphorical or directly related. 
you know, where did some of these instincts come from through the process of evolution? Well, eons ago, you might call it, you know, caveman and cavewoman days, uh, we were much more primitive, and uh, there were threats on our life much more frequently than there are today. And you can imagine that... Um, You can imagine that males with, on average, more muscular bodies, larger bodies, would naturally take to roles in killing, killing animals for food, killing neighboring tribesmen to defend uh, the tribal territory, okay, defend the resources, defend the food, all right? So males would take roles in killing, being on the hunt, being at war, more so than would women. As a result, what would it be like to be a hunter in a group of hunters and to break down in tears over how sad it is to kill an animal? It would destroy the morale. There would be less food on the hunt, and the tribe might die, might not last the winter, might, la might not last the week. So uh, the instinct, masculine instinct in men, uh, that I like to call the Ares instinct, after the Greek uh, mythologic figure Ares, uh, the god of war, um, the killer instinct in men is one that probably drives them away unwittingly, unconsciously, from being as outwardly, publicly emotive. Now, do men cry? One of the things I've been talking a lot with uh, groups lately uh, for some reason, uh, it's on their minds for some reason, is, um, you know, boys don't cry. Where did that phrase come from? You know, all of these, uh, you know, common sayings, common wisdom must come from somewhere. Somebody observed something pretty frequent. They come up with these sorts of things. They get into the popular lexicon. But um, boys don't cry. Where did that come from? Do men not cry? Do boys not cry? Well. Yeah, they do, but how do they? Probably privately, probably not as openly and publicly, okay? And it probably comes from this Aries instinct. Okay, so that's an example of just one of numerous instincts in men that will not be changeable by you, by other men, by anybody. Can't be changed. It's constitutional biological, it's inborn. And it's not all that we are. It's it's animal level, it's primitive, it's the unconscious. We're much more than just that. And we're much more than just animals. Uh, we have an education, a life's experience, a life story, wisdom, decisions, maturity, boundaries, emotions. We have all of these other things besides just instincts. So when I talk about quote, masculinity, masculine instincts, femininity, and feminine instincts. I'm not at all bunching, you know, all women together as being identical twins or all men together as being identical twins. We're not. But what each gender does have in common with itself universally are these instincts, which are just one part of us. They happen to be probably the most powerful force, uh, both for habits and for change but they are unchangeable themselves, okay? Why don't I take a quick break there and see if there is uh, any reaction or any comments on this.
those of you who are listening by web uh, also can submit questions online in the chat box on your screen. Okay, lots of shy people out there. All right, so that's an example of something that can't change. What is constitutional or what is part of your, your personhood? Okay. An example of an instinct in women, a feminine instinct that is unchangeable, that you could never change about your friends, uh, and that men could not change about you, would be shopping, how good that feels uh, to acquire things, okay? This is uh, part of the Hera instinct. Uh, Hera was the wife of uh, Zeus, um, queen of Mount Olympus, and uh, one of her big features was that she was the owner of everything. She was the owner of all the world's land, of all of its possessions. She had the power to grant ownership to uh, mortals and to other gods, okay? So the concept of of shopping or acquiring, uh, acquiring resources is a, a deep instinct in all women. So if you wanted to try to take one of your friends and say, look, I'm going to rid you of the need to shop or the desire to shop, well, good luck. <laughs> um, another one would be uh, the desire for friendship, for a sense of bonding with other women that's very unique to women and a different kind of friendship than men tend to form with each other. That's the Hestia instinct, okay? Uh, you will never uh, eradicate another person of that, another woman of that. It's constitutional. It's built into you, okay? So we can't change other people's constitution or who they are. Um, as a person. We can change more outer things and we can change habits in people. We can encourage the change of habits. Let's talk then about some of the things we covered in the, the intro program to get ready uh, for this seminar. When we were talking about what is the unconscious itself, okay? It's very involved in this uh, this notion of, of habits. Um, the unconscious would be uh, whatever is not conscious, whatever we're not awake and aware about. Um, and it contains at least three types of process that go on in it. Uh, one process we've already covered, which are instincts. Now, there are instincts unique to males, instincts, instincts unique to females, and then there are some instincts that are certainly common uh, between both males and females, which you could call survival instincts. An example of one of those uh, you certainly have heard of is the fight-or-flight instinct. Um, a large dog uh, starts chasing you, and you either are going to try to strike it or run from it. Or a car is uh, speeding toward you, and whether you're male or female, you're going to dive out of the way or have an instinct to if you hear a loud booming noise, you might duck, hit the ground, cover your head, look for where the noise is coming from, whether you're, whether you're male or female, okay, survival instincts. So there's instincts, survival or 
gender-based instincts. But then a second kind of unconscious process is uh, also universal to both males and females. And uh, these are called ego defenses. And we started to talk about those to a degree um, in the, uh, the intro program, getting ready for this. Ego defenses are well known to uh, therapists, psychologists, psychoanalysts. And um, my shorthand for what they are is that they're kind of universal social habits. They're social habits that we use. And they're on a range between immature all the way up to mature social habits, mature ego defenses. Some of the mature ego defenses um, that come with some life's experience, bumping up against others and uh, learning how to be social and, you know, live in a society you've heard of. Some of them may be surprising. Um, one is humor, being able to laugh things off, being able to find humor in things. It's a mature ego defense. And ultimately what ego defenses do is they help lower our anxiety about social scenarios that we're in. Uh, they help us navigate the world socially. And they're pretty automatic and universal among both males and females. So humor is a good one. It's a mature one to be able to laugh at things and say, oh, well, you know, what could I have done? Um, charity or altruism is another mature ego defense. Taking discomfort and anxiety and doing something in your power to be good to others, to give in the world, altruism. Another one is suppression. Uh, that's like putting something on the back burner because there's just no answer right now. Okay, Being able to table something for a while because there is no answer. That's mature, and it's an ego defense. Now, some of the most immature ego defenses uh, you will often hear in association with uh, people who need to change um, addictions. The most primitive immature ego defense has been said to be denial, being in denial. Okay, It's like a, a child stealing a cookie from the cookie jar, caught red-handed, so to speak, by mom. She says, what are you doing eating that cookie? And the child says, I'm not eating a cookie. That's denial as a defense. It lowers the child's anxiety at being caught. Okay? And you see that in, you know, some criminals and people who have gone to jail. You know, I didn't embezzle money. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Denial. Okay? So immature ego defense. Uh, another common one. Now, you've heard that. Denial, being in denial, very common um, in uh, addictionology treatment and circles, right? But another one, the common one is uh, projection. And projection is where we um, take something we don't like about ourselves, and this is all unconscious. Remember, we're in the unconscious here. Um, taking something we don't like about ourselves and attributing it to someone else, okay? Uh, it's a pretty handy tool to understand projection. Uh, it works both for things we don't like about ourselves and also things that are downright heroic about ourselves that we aren't ready to sort of take on the responsibility for. And we have 
you know, wonderful skills or talents and we just aren't ready for the responsibility of wielding them. We might do hero worship. So hero worship is also projection where we're putting our best traits onto other people and saying, oh, no, I could never do that, but, you know, you're my hero instead of, you know, us using our best skills and going out into the community with them. So what is projection then? Um, projection is something that happens because of our boundaries that we're going to talk more about a little bit later. When we have holes in our boundary, we project through those. When we are in denial, we're actually looking out a hole in our boundary. And what I'm uh, finding out by and large is there are a lot of these ego defenses, these, these unconscious universal social habits both men and women have, almost always have something to do with uh, your boundary, your personal boundary. It's very interesting. You can draw pictures of these ego defenses and make the invisible about psychology visible. So projection is where we take negative things about ourselves and we put them onto other people so that we don't have to feel as if we are them. Give you a handy practical example. Almost always when you dislike a person that you've never met or just met, you're projecting because you don't know that person. So how can you claim to be a fit judge of a person you don't even know? You can't. You're projecting. So whatever you dislike about a person you don't know or just met, there's a fair chance that that thing you dislike is actually a feature of you that you could maybe get acquainted with and work with and tweak and change and improve. A common example might be um, if you've ever felt you were at a cocktail party and somebody had a very vibrant personality and you said, oh, I hate her. Um, she's such a show-off or she's always taking the spotlight. I hate her. Well, how can you hate a person that you really don't know at all? You've, you've seen them a few times. You don't know them really at all. How can you hate them? Chances are there's a part to you that is outgoing but maybe underground and buried a bit, and you haven't flexed that muscle a lot. Um, part of you wishes that you would or could, but you don't, and you wish you had the spotlight more often. You wish you were the center of attention more often. And so these others that you hate, really, it's a part of you. And if you got acquainted with that and brought it out and worked on it and expressed it, you'd have a more satisfying life. And still not feel all that anxious or conflicted to the person. And you stop making so many enemies because of projection, okay? Another one would be uh, your smarts. If you're, um, if you're in an occupation that you just know uh, on some level you're not living up to your potential and you have a lot of potential, but um, – you go around admiring other people with jobs you wish you could do and say, oh, I could never do that. Um, I could never be a singer or a musician or I could never um, be an attorney or a doctor. And, you know, you're doing some job that is okay, 
that you're familiar with and you're sort of in a habit of doing. And we can apply this to men too, of course, but we're starting with you. Um, it may be that part of you also knows there would be a lot of work and responsibility in cultivating that thing you know you could do. And it's just easier to stay in the habit in the easier profession or easier career for now. So you hero worship others. That's also projection, okay? So these are two examples of uh, less mature ego defenses that are also unconscious processes alongside the instincts. And then finally, a third one that is neither uh, instinct-based uh, nor is it uh, ego defense in nature. It's simply what we all call habits. Okay, whatever your habits. If you and there are constructive habits and destructive habits. And those tend to be pretty individualistic, even though a lot of people uh get similar habits. They're all your own. They're your own as a unique individual. And so if part of what you would want to change about a man is a habit, uh, that is doable. That is not constitutional for the man or biological in the way that I was explaining earlier about masculine instincts. You can't change masculine instincts in a man, and you can encourage uh, ego defenses to change to become the more mature ones, like humor, altruism, and suppression, you know, tabling something. You can encourage maturity in general in another person that's a lot of work. That's like the act of parenting. And you had, you would have to decide up front whether you want to put that work in to actually parent someone else. That's rife with a, um, you know, a lot of bad endings and obstacles, okay, because the natural history of agreeing to parent another person is one where oftentimes uh, you put in a lot of work the way a mother does to a child and then eventually the child grows up and says, thanks a lot, you're a great parent, now I'm going to go off into the world. Well, imagine doing that with a, a romantic partner, where they grow up thanks to your parenting, and then they feel good about who they are, and they're like, thanks a lot, uh, let's break up. Now I'm going to go find a, a, a peer and partner. And they always saw you as a parent rather than a, peer and equal. So you got to watch out for that early on too. Watch out for men who would latch on to you more like a son than a partner. Okay? Because that could be the end of the story. But that's ego defenses. They can change through the act of parenting someone. But habits, habits are not constitutional. They're things that have been picked up over the years. Habits things that have been picked up over the years. Um, now, some of them are common, and many people have them, but in their own unique way, as I said. Smoking, for example. Not everybody starts smoking in the first place. Not everybody had that peer pressure in school to even start. Um, uh, drinking, not everybody uh, uh, succumbs to that. Drugs, marijuana, gambling. You know, these are all universal uh, 
not universal. These are all common addictions, but not everybody has them. And it's not constitutional, so to speak. So a habit is something that is unique to a person. There can be general categories of them. Um, and there can be destructive habits or constructive habits. An example of a constructive habit might be one to exercise uh, on a regular basis or to brush your teeth once or twice a day or to floss, okay, or to change your clothes even. These are all constructive habits. So what is a habit? And this is just one area of life that you might want to encourage change in, in a man. Um, a habit is a repetitive decision. A habit is a repetitive decision. It's a decision made over and over. Um, literally from the encyclopedia, habits are routines of behavior that are repeated regularly and tend to occur subconsciously. Okay? Habitual behavior often goes unnoticed in persons exhibiting it because a person does not need to engage in self-analysis while undertaking routine tasks. Make sense? So habits are also unconscious, but they are not constitutional. They are not part of who you are as a person in the way that masculine instincts or feminine instincts are or in the way that your current maturity level and therefore your ego defenses are. So they are changeable. Okay? And they are a type of repetitive decision-making that you are not awake and aware to. The first step in changing any habit for yourself or encouraging it in another person is actually a, a skill of personal growth. And I call it the prime core skill of personal growth. Without this skill, it's impossible to change. And the inability to encourage it in another person makes it impossible to help that person change. And that skill is called observing ego by therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. Observing ego is a lot like uh, mindfulness that Buddhists talk about. Um, it's like uh, being present-minded or in the now, like uh, author Eckhart Tolle talks about, or Deepak Chopra. It's um, self-observant. It's awareness. It's being awake. Artificial intelligence uh, computer programmers call it sentience, being sentient or self-aware. I think computers have not yet achieved. Um, there are a lot of words for this, but it amounts to something like being your own advisor or your own big sister or your own parent, your own mentor, your own coach in real time as you live your life. Okay, so that would be encouraging it in you if you were to encourage this very first skill of personal growth or change, without which change cannot occur, growth cannot occur, then you would want to encourage observing ego in the man in question. So that means what could you do to get him to stop and self-analyze? What could you get him to do to 
become more aware of himself, of his behaviors, of his needs, of his effect on others. Okay. It involves getting into a kind of uh, timeless space for a person. What I mean by that, we all do uh, this in our own way, uh, depending on your lifestyle, your religion, etc. If you meditate, or if you pray, or if you do yoga, or if you get a massage, or if you go to a therapist's office, all of these various things get you in a timeless state of mind, because outer cues and distractions are minimized when you do that. It's like thinking about thinking. It's getting into your own head and getting clarity in your own head. It's taking a break from the stresses of life and from duties and obligations to go and think and be alone and be in your head. Okay? So one of the first things that I think of in trying to help another person to change or giving them a chance at it is the environment that we provide for another person. Okay? If we can invite another person into um, a present-minded environment that has minimal distraction, like inviting a man you're with to go do yoga with you and get in that mental space where there's self-observation that can happen, that's observing ego. If you are in a religious tradition where you attend services, you can invite the person to those services. Um, if you were to pray together or meditate together, you would be doing this. You would be helping the other person, providing an environment to this other person for them to be able to access this observing ego. The required first skill at any change, okay, including changing habits. Now, of note, there's more than just habits that you may want change in in a man that are not constitutional other than habits. It might be something uh, more simple and superficial than what is psychological. It could be you want a man to lose weight or you want a man uh, to manage his medical condition better or for him to be more organized or be on more on time or maybe to change something about his attire or outer appearance, his clothing, okay? Or maybe something about his social graces, something that isn't about a habit like smoking, okay? Those are fair game too, okay? But whatever it is, it, it's got to be something that he voluntarily would want to change, and that you could show him the possibilities for. In the end, he'll have to decide if he wants to change. But what you can do is show him what's possible, and then it might be more appealing to him. Okay? It's the only way to encourage someone else to change. I'm going to stop there, take a break, and again, see if there are any comments or thoughts here. I see someone on the line from Norscan Medical. I don't know what that is. It's interesting. That's me, Dr. Paul. Angel. Yeah. Yeah? 
Yes, hi. I did submit a question. My question was um, regarding the uh, lifestyle change uh, for a man. At what point would he give up on choosing um, not to have that lifestyle and go back to what he had preferred? When would he give up on that if he was doing it for somebody else? So how could you encourage a man to give up a lifestyle um, and go back to a former, in your view, better lifestyle? Um, for him to have, and I'm, gonna, I'm being very vague in general because I want to respect, you know, what you may deem your privacy. But uh, believe you me, nobody would ever be able to identify you, not even saying your name, actually. Um, if there were any detail to what that lifestyle is, it might be helpful. But I could make some up. Um, if a man started out in a lifestyle, let's say, oh, here's a classic. Here's a classic one that so many women see happen. A man starts out in a lifestyle where he was once married. And he was nice and normal and civic-minded and um, responsible. And he had a couple children with a woman. And for whatever reason, the relationship went south. And there eventually was a divorce. And uh, he was the, the, the wage earner. Um, and he lost more than half of everything he ever made. That, just as an example, uh, but a common one, can produce a constitutional kind of injury to the man, even though it's just and right and legal, okay, and condoned by society. It produces injury uh, constitutionally to the man because it's damage to his career or income. And in the same way that um, notice how attentive women are to their physical health, to their bodies, their physical health. That's how men feel about their careers, to, to, and which is not to say women don't love their careers and are completely invested in them, but how it feels in the bones to the man generally is that the career is their body, like it is their identity. And so losing money, for example, in a divorce or losing uh, earning power, not through a divorce, through layoffs, through a down economy, whatever it is, feels like having a piece of your flesh taken away. feels that bad to a man, psychologically. Now a change occurs in the man before you've even met him. He was married. He was divorced. He went through this damage, this constitutional damage, and he ends up uh, changing lifestyle, more into just being a serial dater. Um, I think of uh, the first marriage of George Clooney. You know, he'd been there, done that, never going to do it again. So he says, not for me, he says. There's been a major lifestyle change, okay? Something convinced the man, um, maybe consciously, but definitely unconsciously, 
that there is a more appealing lifestyle that will be safer and more pleasurable. And now he's gone into that lifestyle of just being a serial dater, never wants to marry again. And then you meet him. He really likes you. And you really like him. And you have way more of an alignment of personality style than exes did. You have way more in common. You actually have similar life goals. Uh, you have sexual chemistry. You have all this stuff going for you. You start dating. But he is in this serial dating lifestyle now. And eventually you start worrying and wondering, oh boy, am I ever going to you know, marry this guy? We get along so well. I would hate to not be able to marry the guy. We're right for each other. And he agrees. And he says, well, I'm never going to marry. But I would never be with another woman other than you. But I'm never going to marry. Because that's a legal state. That's a contract. It's not about love. That's a legality. I feel committed to you. And that's a real psychological state. And he means it. Well, there you go. Um, that would be a common scenario uh, that I've heard hundreds of times that, you know, might uh, be said by a woman who would want to change a man um, out of this lifestyle of being a, quote, uh, non-marriage-minded person, let's say. Hmm. Is that ring a bell or uh is, is that an analogy yes or, yes yes that that was a great example thank you okay <laughs> <laughs> so you know sometimes when we think we want another person to change uh just by sort of casting a different light on it we might discover wait a minute maybe we wouldn't want the person to change <laughs> Maybe it's just how we're seeing things um, that we don't have a meeting in the minds hmm. about it, you know. And if the yeah. man could understand more your perspective and you could understand more the man's personal perspective and translate between the languages, you might actually find you want you do want the same things. And you just understand them differently. Yes. Um, how about a very different kind of uh, change problem that is lifestyle related that is uh, insoluble. There's no solution to it. Um, you meet a man and date a while and really like him and he really likes you but then at that point after a number of months you discover he's a swinger and that is not at all like you. Or after a number of months, you discover you just never talked about politics, and now you found that uh, he's a lifelong Democrat or a lifelong Republican, and that's neither you know one or the other of those is just not you at all. That it just you know hurts you deep in the bones for them to have the political leanings they have. Well, then what do you do? It depends how much you value that particular area of life. If it's politics, for example, or it's religion, if you're heavily, heavily invested in a particular area of life, 
and so is he, then you may find that there is no solution, that the best would have been to realize early, early on in dating that in early dating things are not so serious. They're fun and flirty and sexy, but not serious. Then you could have parted ways while things were not so serious because this incompatibility. Now, sometimes people of very different politics or very different religion um, do make it work or make it work easily. Uh, but that can tend to be because one or the other person doesn't really care that much about politics. And they say, you know what? All right, convince me about your politics. I'm not big on politics. Tell me more about what you like and what you know about. And they're a little more flexible about it because it's not as important a thing to them. So it doesn't become an issue in the relationship. Maybe they even officially change their political party affiliation based on knowing you because they weren't that invested in it. Do any of those uh, strike a similarity? With your interest in, uh, in changing a partner, regarding lifestyle or habit? Um, this is Angel again. I, uh, uh-huh. Yes, I, I, uh, I liked your, your second story. Um, I think basically what, what I w- was asking initially was um, if something is so embedded in, in, in a man from a very uh, young age, to have a certain type of a lifestyle as an adult and and it's hidden but somehow it comes out in the future then he says okay I I will give it up but then he tries and tries and tries and tries and he really can't and he goes back to his lifestyle so what what at what point would he go back to his lifestyle well, let's think about let's think about what uh, a general method is going to be, and kind of jump into that now. And cut to the chase. Uh, what would the method be of changing a man, if that's possible? Um, you you understand that it's got to be voluntary on his part because of boundaries. And really quickly, one of the ways boundaries work, um, we can't set a goal in another person's boundary. We can't set a goal in another person's boundary because we've just invaded their territory. That's sacrosanct. It belongs to them and only them, and only they can change it, what's inside their boundary. Um, Some of the uh, verbiage that that you would say or would have heard about uh, this impossible issue is, um, my goal for you is A, B, or C. You know, if you ever had a mom say that to you or a teacher or, you know, some adult in your life, maybe when you were a rebellious teenager, and they said, my goal for you is A, B, or C, how did you feel? You felt like completely rebelling against it, okay? And to a certain degree, you know, parents have huge influence and sway over their children and teach their children values and beliefs that eventually the children may grow up and some of which disavow once they're adults 
with full, complete boundaries to make their own choices about their lifestyles and their beliefs and what they want to do with their life. But while you're in that state, somebody's telling you, my goal for you is it can't work because we can only set goals mutually outside ourselves. Like if a husband and wife decided together, let's stop smoking together. Well, that's an external goal that they're both looking out at together. But if somebody told you, um, (laughs) I'll give you an example. One time, a personal example. One time I had a girlfriend long ago who said, um, my goal for you is to vote for this person for president. (laughs) Because, Because I'm British and I can't vote. So you're going to cast your vote for me. (laughs) <laughs> and it and it was it, it, it's the last candidate I would ever in my lifetime vote for. Okay. And uh I broke up over it. Um yeah. See it's an invasion of someone else's boundary to have a goal inside their boundary. But once you have strong boundaries and mutually respectful boundaries, your best way of inviting, welcoming, um encouraging, stimulating, and influencing, offering someone support in a chance to change would be through, instead of just these superficial steps of change, addressing the whole person. And some of you are familiar with one of our other programs, the Seventh Sense program, where we go through three phases of courtship. Well, those parallel three areas of the mind the instincts, the emotions, and then the executive functions of the mind, the higher brain, or the evolutionary psychologists call it the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and the higher brain. Instincts, emotions, and maturity of character, the intellect. If you appealed to the man and invited the man on all three of those levels, beginning with the instincts, the most powerful drives, Okay, the thing that cause that causes habits in the first place, then you win. You're appealing to the whole person, their instincts, their emotions, and their higher brain character and maturity, their intellectual sensibilities. Okay, doing what's right. All right, doing what's right is the most um, durable, long-lasting part of us. But doing what feels pleasurable is the most powerful part of us. Doing what's most pleasurable in the reptilian brain, in the instincts, is the most powerful part of us, and yet the most fickle. Doing what's right is the most durable part of us, the most long-lasting part of us, but the least powerful part of us. So clearly just encouraging one or the other doesn't work. But what if you encouraged all of the above? What if you encouraged what was pleasurable and um, most happy emotionally and what's right intellectually, instinctually, emotionally, and intellectually? what's most pleasurable 
instinctually, meaning what maximizes the man's feelings of being a man, of being masculine. And side effect, wonderful side effect, the higher his masculinity, the more he contributes in passion for you, you feeling feminine and passionate. And what makes him happiest, in other words, highest self-esteem, and what's right, ethically, and in maturity, then you win. That's the best you can possibly do to invite someone else to change. And you can't make someone else change. You can invite or welcome. Some people can't change or don't see the world the way you do. Some people have constitutions that uh, they couldn't change even if they wanted to, like having masculine instinct. I can't change. So you might as well give up on that from the get-go or don't start dating the person in the first place. In some cases, you need to break up because you find months or years later that change of the sort that you want cannot be done because it's either constitutional, it's part of being a man, and you'll see it again and again in every man you ever meet, and then eventually you'll learn, oh, they're all this way. (laughs) I better stop even asking them to change this. All men have this. Or you find the right kind of guy if it's not constitutional, and you just found out too late with the first guy. It took months or years to even discover it that he didn't see things the same as you and couldn't, even once you pointed them out to him. Okay, that would be the model. So, you know, I'd I'd love for you to tell me more about the exact situation you're in, but, um, you know, if you hold back on that, then um, we could go into these three general areas and what exactly would you do to address these three types of um, influencer with the man, or three types of invitation to the man, or three types of support, if you will, to the man, three types of welcome to the man. Remember, we can't make someone change. It's voluntary, always. But we can influence, support, invite, or welcome. And now would be a really good time to mention ultimatums. They don't work. And maybe you found that out personally, but now you know scientifically why they don't work, because they're a threat. Uh, They're telling the other person, you aren't what I want. Uh, And the proper response to them is, okay, then let's break up if I'm not what you want. Okay. Now, Mm -hmm. sometimes they're unintentional. They're they're out of desperation, exasperation. You give someone an ultimatum, you're just exasperated. You don't know what to do. You've tried every kind of communicating. You don't know what to do. But sometimes they are manipulative. And, uh, you know, a special little side note is that, you know, for decades now, our Western media has really been trying to sell a lot of goods. And the best way to sell stuff is to break down other people's boundaries and open their wallets. So there's been kind of a force of infantilization in our media by way of 
advertising. Advertising tries to break down your sense of boundaries and mutual respect and get you fighting and get you to believe that there's a war on women and a war on Christmas and a war on everything and men are all bad and men can't commit and men don't share emotions. And to a degree that's true, but it's constitutional. They're just trying to get along in the world and be who they really are. Okay. So we need to kind of cut through those myths and infantilizing boundaryless advertisements that kind of poison us from having real relationship skills where we really do know the other person and understand that they're quite a bit different from us. That's part of why we like them so much. Okay. And any thoughts or reaction before we go into some of the nitty gritty? Not by me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Through through all this, I want you to know that there is hope. Okay. I'm taking something away from you, and what I'm taking away from you is. Um, forcing you into the reality that all relationships are voluntary at all times and we can't make someone else change. But the reason we call this how to get a man to change is it's implying more of an invitation to the man. It's always going to be voluntary. But what I'm going to give you back instead of just taking away that myth from you that we can ultimatum men and make them change and control them. We can't. Even if they fall silent and just say nothing, it doesn't mean that they agree, right? You've experienced that. When you really, really want a man to agree and you really push on him and finally he just falls silent and says, yes, honey, he doesn't really mean yes, honey. He's going into his head to find solitude and, and erect a boundary in his head. Clearly, we can't make people change and ultimatum them into change. We'll just accelerate a breakup. And maybe that's what needed to happen anyway. Instead, let's find hopefulness in the fact that human beings have free will, males and females, and that if a habit or a lifestyle or whatever area of life it is that you would like to see change in, whether it's uh, sexual, romantic, commitment-oriented, um, financial, health, physical health, emotional health, addictive, whatever the change is that you seek. If it's his attire or something more superficial, whatever the change is, by inviting him and deciding on a term, deciding on a length of time beyond which you will get exasperated and just can't bear it anymore. And you will have to voluntarily make the choice to leave or separate or just not deal with it anymore or accept it. You know, depending how you weigh and measure everything about your life together, you decide what your limit is or what your boundary is and what the ultimate length of time will be to wait for change while encouraging change while showing him the benefits of change 
and setting an example of change. Maybe it's a month. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's six months. Maybe it's ten years. Maybe it's you're just going to accept it because there's just so much other great things about them. And if you really get honest with yourself, you're just going to have to accept it because you don't want to totally quit them. There's too much good. Whatever it is, decide what your boundary is first on that and on what, on what the term for the length of change will be while you're trying these things out. And then after that, you can go ahead and start to use uh, some, of these, some of these tools I'm going to lay out and understand that for this whole term you've decided on, and by term I mean length of time, a week, a month, six months, a year, five years, ten years, or never, that throughout whatever that time segment is that you have decided is your boundary, your limit, know that people have free will. And free will means we can decide. We are free to decide moment to moment on what our behavior will be. We are free to decide moment to moment on what our behavior will be. And if habits are collections of decisions that are repeated over time, then at any time, a man can decide to change a habit at any time. In other words, if you've been waiting five years for him to quit smoking, that does not mean he will be a smoker for life. What it does mean is that up till now, it was more pleasurable, happy, and right for him to keep smoking than to quit. It was more pleasurable, happy, and right if he added all that up in his personhood to keep smoking than to quit. And he didn't have enough big uh, big picture perspective from you or the world or the media or his friends or family or everything around him to see maybe the vision you have for how much better it would be to not smoke. He didn't see it and he wasn't influenced enough to either see it or to change. He didn't see potential higher pleasure, more happiness, and more right, more success in changing for the last five years up till now. But because of free will, he could at any moment change. But you can't force that. You can't ultimatum it. You can't decide for him. It's voluntary. But you can welcome, invite, support, and have a mind for these three areas of the mind. Pleasure in his masculine instincts, the reptilian brain. Happiness or self-esteem in the emotional centers of the brain, the mammalian brain. And right, success, ethics, wisdom in the higher brain, in the cerebral cortex, if you will. Okay, So there's always hope because there's always free will. And if habits are decisions and we all have the free will at any moment to change our choices, 
change our decision from destructive to constructive, then there is always hope. But it's got to be paired with it's voluntary. We can't force it or ultimatum it. Okay? Thank you, Dr. Paul. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's take a look at uh, first things first. The reptilian brain. Uh, for the man, uh, the center of masculinity and masculine instincts. This area of the mind is in the unconscious. This area of the mind is what has a person feeling passion. In one of our other programs, the Seven Sense program, we talk about romantic passion or sexual attraction. Here, we're not talking as much about that. But we are still talking about passion. It's passion for life. A synonym for it is vitality feeling alive, feeling beyond happy. It's feeling fantastic, feeling glowing with life. That's what masculinity feels like to men, and that's what femininity feels like to women. And it's okay that they're different. It's just our animal instincts. It's the biggest place where we're different. We're really not different in any of the other other areas of the mind in the emotions or in the intellect or in wisdom. But we are decidedly different in animal instincts, in what is masculine versus what is feminine. And no, I don't uh, subscribe to males having uh, femininity to them or in women having masculinity to them. I think those are features of personality style, which is a different thing. Okay. So uh, I like using Greek mythology for us to understand what the triggers are of masculinity. And if you can trigger these things in association with the change that you seek, they will be the most powerful force. Not the most durable, they are the most fickle and yet most powerful forces of change are the things that trigger a man to feel more masculine. If you can associate these things with the change that you seek, then you'll be using the most powerful force, not the most durable. That's the higher brain. That's appeal to maturity of character and doing right. But the most powerful these are. Okay. The Olympic gods... Uh, of ancient Greece. Okay, why do I use these in several of our programs? Uh, The Seventh Sense program, for example, on romance, courtship, uh, the Complete Feminine Empowerment program on what masculine and feminine instincts even are. Okay, and it's a career program, the Complete Feminine Empowerment program. Uh, Why use these gods and goddesses to understand men and women? Well, because mythology or stories that last thousands of years last thousands of years because they must contain universals about human behavior in them or they wouldn't last. They'd be more like art house films that are popular for a month that are kind of quirky. They don't last. Shakespeare lasts, but Shakespeare is just a redo of a lot of these Ancient Greek myths, you see. The same is true of religions, universal principles, oftentimes about both men and women, 
as opposed to separating the genders. So I like looking to these ancient Greek and Roman myths because there's such such prominent male figures and female figures. So you want to associate and appeal to these, welcome these. Don't um, uh, you know discount them or objectify them or call them silly in men. It's important to bring up the topic of shame here. So, so important to understand. The opposite of masculinity is shame. The opposite of femininity is shame. Masculinity and femininity are different from each other, but they aren't the opposite of each other. They're complementary. The opposite of both of them is shame. And so what makes a woman feel ashamed is very different from what makes a man feel ashamed. Um, I often talk about uh, this quote from uh, a lady, Deborah Tannen, an author um, who calls herself a psycholinguist or sociolinguist, um, a person who studies words and conversation and gender. And she says the worst thing a little boy could do to another little boy is to defeat him, to win against him. But the worst thing a little girl could do to another little girl would be to exclude her from her group of friends or from her secrets, to deny her access to her secrets. That says something uh, about masculinity and femininity uh, that is very different. Uh, you see these play out, for example, you know, in any war story uh, that makes a man feel shame because he lost the war, and in uh, such novels as The Scarlet Letter, in which the worst shame a woman could feel is being banished from the community, excluded, okay? So I suppose you could say that the way a man feels when he loses or is defeated, whether it's at sports or in the workplace or in an argument, including with you, is exactly the same way he feels emotionally when you are abandoned by friends or family or when you are outcast or banished. So for men and women to have more empathy for each other, I like to get them to imagine this is to men as that is to women. Now, the way you feel in your situation is how a man would feel in this other situation. They're exactly identical in how they feel, but the scenarios are different. So if you can encourage um, these masculine instincts or traits rather than fear them or catcall them or uh, demean them or dishonor them, boy, you've gotten over one of the biggest hurdles that women would have to get over if they ever want to get a man to change. It goes along with the ultimatum thing that I, I raised in introduction to this topic of shame um, because shame is a cutting down of masculinity or femininity. So we can't shame someone into change. 
we can't embarrass someone into changing. Many men I've talked to who have a lot of shame over a needed change, um, such as addictions or paraphilias, uh, which are you know, sexual disorders, for example, um, or um, infidelity, or you know, all of these shameful areas of life, most of them will tell me, you know, it's weird. There's like a double whammy to it. Not only does he feel shame about being accused of doing wrong and therefore needing to change, but he also feels shame about having done the thing that's wrong. Whereas to the rest of us, you know, when we watch all the bad men out there on the news uh, who cheat and do bad things and the Charlie Sheens and, you know, all that stuff, David Hasselhoff, Ashton Kutcher, and Tiger Woods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we see bad people depicted by the media, and we think, oh, maybe they'll learn their lesson now that they've gotten punishment. But we might not even realize that they have double punishment. They already felt punished by having let themselves down and having chosen to do wrong that they, they need to change and would want to change, but just weren't able to yet. And the punishment sometimes just double injures rather than genuinely encourages change. So something to wonder about and let sink in. We have to avoid shaming people if we want to get them to change. They definitely will not change if we shame them. Okay. All right. So let's get into these instincts um, and learn about them. And maybe you can pull some uh, useful techniques and tactics out of these in the most powerful and yet fickle area of the mind, which is the reptilian brain, the place where masculinity resides and femininity resides. Okay. Here we go. Okay, first off, Zeus. Okay, Zeus is king of the gods, ruler of Mount Olympus, god of the sky and god of thunder. Um, some of the symbols associated with him are the thunderbolt, the eagle, the scepter, and the scales. Um, he's the ruler or leader, and he's the husband of Hera. Uh, the queen uh, goddess, okay? However, he also has many lovers, much to the dismay of Hera, okay? And that's a complete derivative matter uh, for us to talk about how males are sexually attracted to many, many different females over the lifetime. But we are more than just this animal instinct. We have boundaries and character and maturity too, which hopefully, you know, bar us from cheating. But instinctually, you can see how Zeus drives Hera crazy because he's this, um, uh, uh, you know, he's this, uh, this cheater, this um, philanderer is the word, okay? But he's the, so you don't encourage that, obviously. But he's a leader god. He's, uh, you know, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's the president. So it's leadership. 
So if you were to encourage a man to change, and anyone at some point can throw out a specific change you would wish to see in a man, whether it's quitting smoking or uh, some addiction or um, stop philandering or whatever it may be, let me know. Um, but for you to encourage his leadership in something in association with the change you would seek, then you are amplifying his masculinity, which is the most powerful force of feeling pleasure and passion for life, and you are associating it with the change you seek. I could give you an example. Say that um, you and he were both smokers, or maybe only he is a smoker and you're a non-smoker, the way you communicate to him about a visit to the doctor for medication and therapy and groups about ceasing smoking, smoking cessation, you could use language that is encouraging of his leadership of you both or of the family or maybe even a group of friends of his who all want to quit smoking. You might say, say you could say, I'll go with you. Uh, can you drive us there? <laughs> okay, you're encouraging the Zeus instinct, the leadership instinct in him. You're being clever, and you aren't being self-demeaning. This is another really crucial uh, tactic, technique, and strategy all in one alongside the fact that we need to avoid shaming people if we want to get them to change. It's that empowering someone else does not disempower us. Empowering someone else absolutely does not disempower us. And a lot of what you see in the media would lead you to think otherwise because it's all about creating wars and conflict between people. There's a war on Christmas and on women and on everything else to get you to watch their channel. Okay? Empowering other people does not disempower us. So helping a man feel more masculine does not disempower you or make you less feminine. It actually gives him more to give you and more to give the world and maybe more to give your children if you have children, okay? So making a man feel like a leader is not an act of submission at all. It is being a teammate on your part. So use leader language that lets him lead. Here would be another example. Say that two of his friends overhear you talking about smoking, and you take the opportunity to say, hey, you know, I really want Joe to quit smoking, but more importantly, he wants to. That's great to say it that way. And you guys are smokers too. Did you ever think of quitting? Yeah, yeah, we'd love to quit. We just can't. You know, what do you do? I don't know. Where do you, where do you go to figure that out? You say, well, Joe just found out. Joe told me about a program he heard of. Instead of, I found a program for Joe, and I'm forcing him to do it, okay? He found a program, and it sounds like it works. Did you guys ever think of going together? 
Why don't you go together? Joe will lead. Joe will drive you all. Okay, so you're empowering him with this Zeus instinct, which makes him feel more masculine, and you're associating it with the change rather than with the smoking. Okay? So that's one example. The Zeus instinct. The Poseidon instinct. Uh, Poseidon was the lord of the seas, earthquakes, and strangely, horses too. I don't know why (laughs) the horse thing. But his symbols include the horse, the bull, the dolphin, and the trident. He is the brother of Zeus and of Hades. Um, He is married to Amphitrite. And one of his sons is named Triton, messenger of the seas. Well, since the seas to the ancient Greeks were the source of so much, uh, the source of transportation, the source of uh, sustenance, food, fish, okay, survival itself, nourishment, and the seas are everywhere. If you've ever been in Greece or on one of the islands, the water is perfectly blue and clear. It's like heaven, okay? It's all you see is water, okay? Then Poseidon is uh, the instinct in males for acquiring property or territory. Now, in a couple of our other programs, the Seven Sense program and the Mind OS Mastery program, I talk about two types of male jealousy, uh, and this is pertaining to romance, but two types of male jealousy. One type is weak and of low character and immature. It's a needy, cloying kind of jealousy. But there's another kind of male jealousy that really isn't jealousy at all. It's territoriality, and it's positive. If a man is jealous of other men approaching you or looking at you, there's a piece to that that's very, very good. And it's not as possessive in a negative, dangerous, toxic way as it is um, protective. He is territorial about you. So men are territorial about a lot of what they have in their lives. And it's the Poseidon instinct that is territorial. The Poseidon instinct is the instinct in males to pursue acquisition of property and acquisition ownership of things, okay? So one of the things that you can do for him uh, to encourage him to change in this regard would be to point out uh, how a change would produce more property or possessions for him. I don't know if we can still use the... uh, smoking cessation analogy for this, but I have heard people talk about it in the past. Uh, the cost of cigarettes has, you know, drastically gone up, right? And uh, I forget what it is now. I have a lot of patients who smoke. Um, something like $10, $10 or $8 a pack or $100 a carton. And I guess a carton has 10 or 20 packs in it. Yeah, that's starting to add up to be a whole lot of money. So you could encourage somebody uh, as a, you know, crude example here of the Poseidon instinct. You could say, hey, did you ever calculate how much money 
you would save over a year if you quit smoking. And you could do it in a way that encourages both the Zeus and the Poseidon instinct, masculine instincts in men, and, and let him lead. Okay, so you don't calculate it. Ask him if he has calculated it and be excited for him to show you his calculation. Let him lead. That's the Zeus. And then he'll calculate out, oh my gosh, if I smoke, uh, let's see, two cartons a month, that's $200 times 12 months. It's $2,400 a year in cigarettes. How much more would I own with that money? That encourages the Poseidon instinct. So you associate acquisition of territory or property with the change you seek. And maybe you suggest, what could you do with $2,400? Men love computers. Okay, computers are to men as shoes are to women. So if you love a pair of shoes, some Jimmy Choo's, I don't mean to be trite and sex in the city-like, but if you love a pair of shoes, that's how a man feels about an Apple computer. And an Apple computer, a great one, is about $2,400. You could say, I'll tell you what, the end of the year, I will buy you an Apple computer with the money we will have saved from your cigarettes. That's encouraging the Poseidon instinct. And what's even even better about that is a computer itself is uh, a device that men use to further their territory and possessions through business. Okay? It's like a Poseidon that makes other Poseidons. All right? You kind of read me on this so far? Do you get the gist of how these instincts work? Yes. Good. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's the next one from the Big 12, the uh, the 12 chief uh, deities of the ancient Greeks. Dionysus, or to the Romans, was called Bacchus, the god of wine, celebrations, and ecstasy, the god of celebration, also the patron god of the theater and the, the arts. Symbols include the grapevine, ivy, the cup, the tiger, the panther, the leopard, the dolphin, he is the son of Zeus, and he is married to the princess Ariadne, whom I've talked about a lot lately on womenshappiness.com. Uh, the youngest Olympian, okay, so he is a youthful god, and he is the one to, the only one to have been born of a mortal woman. Okay, so Dionysus, or Bacchus, is the male instinct for celebration. When your guy throws a barbecue or hosts a party or invites his buddies over to watch sports, it's the Dionysus instinct in him. You can encourage this instinct, but keep in mind, any one of these instincts, if you over-encourage just one of them instead of all of them in balance, the man can fall into imbalance. Because what is the dark side of encouraging celebration and only that? Well, the dark side is addiction to things, alcohol and drugs and other things, overeating even. What is the dark side of over-encouraging the Zeus instinct and nothing else? Well, you can sort of bring out the guy's arrogance. All people, male and female, have some degree of narcissism or arrogance. 
And if you over-encourage the leadership in the man to the point where he leads everything all the time, then where is your leadership and your Hera instinct? Okay? So there's a dark side to over-encouraging just one of these instincts instead of all of them in balance. But the Dionysus instinct or Bacchus instinct is the part of the man that needs to celebrate and needs your encouragement of that celebration. And that can be with him or with his friends. So, you know, the easy uh, trite example would be you throw a party when the man achieves the change, or you let him throw the party, or you let him go on that guy's trip abroad that he's been wanting to go on. You You let him celebrate, and you encourage that instinct. The next one is Apollo. Uh, God of light, knowledge, music, poetry, prophecy, and archery, the son of Zeus. His symbols include the sun, the lyre, the bow and arrow, the raven, the dolphin, the wolf, the swan. And he is the twin brother of Artemis, the female instinct. Uh, Artemis, is a, Artemis is the female instinct highlighted. I'm going to cut you guys off with the noise here. Artemis is the female instinct, uh, very highlighted in the recent hit film, uh, The Hunger Games. In fact, the lead actress literally is Artemis. I mean, she even uses a bow and arrow as a hunter. (laughs) Okay. She is the Renaissance woman. She is the educated woman. She is the woman hungry for knowledge and for precision with knowledge. And that instinct in you, in part, is probably a, a fair part of what brought you to our material, because our material is kind of brainy stuff, okay, science. So Artemis, Apollo is the twin brother of Artemis. So he is the Renaissance man, okay? So to encourage your man in the process of a change you seek, uh, for him that you want him to voluntarily agree to, you would simply appeal to his curious side. An example of this, if we once again used smoking, um, and you can contribute any other kinds of change you would like to see, but an example would be for you to ask him to look up all kinds of information about smoking cessation and get all geeked out on it. Get all interested in how fascinating the chemistry of smoking is and look up the facts and figures about it, okay? It's appealing to uh, an educated part of the man. And Artemis is appealing to an educated, curious part of you, okay? All right, Mercury or Hermes, okay? This is the messenger of the gods, Um, the god of commerce and thieves. His symbols include the caduceus, a staff entwined with two snakes, and winged sandals, a tortoise, and a stork are all symbols of Hermes or Mercury. He is the second youngest Olympian, just slightly older than Dionysus. Okay. Um, 
also wanted to mention about Dionysus. If Dionysus is the youngest god and Hermes or Mercury is the second youngest, you're also appealing to a man's youthfulness, um, his desire to stay young and feel vibrant by way of having a young spirit. If you were going to encourage a man to quit smoking, then you would appeal to the youthfulness of being a non-smoker. And instead of focusing on how tobacco ages your skin, you would focus on how tobacco cessation makes your skin more youthful. Instead of appealing to the negative and ultimatum-y kinds of talk, appeal to the positive. Okay? So youth is also a feature of Dionysus and Hermes. And Hermes is uh, the god of communication and the god of commerce. Okay, so this is the part of the man that likes to weigh in with opinions on things. This is the part of the man that likes to be asked questions. You might say that this instinct in all males especially um, is encouraging and a favored instinct of men with a king personality style. Those of you who are familiar with KWML Mastery and the KWML personality styles, a king loves this instinct, the communication instinct and the rendering of opinions, of having special information, loves to dispense special information. If you know of a man who is really into trivia and seems to know a lot of answers to things, this instinct works hand-in-hand hand with the Apollo instinct, the Renaissance man instinct. Okay, because this is the part of him that loves to give an opinion. And if he's a learned man, then he knows a lot, loves to dispense the information. Okay? Um, so you might ask him, what do you think about smokers? What do you think about smoking? What do you think about the change that I'm proposing? What is your opinion about marriage? If we left the area of smoking and said, the change you seek is to get married, for the man to be marriage-minded. Instead of saying, hey, it's time to get married. We better get married. If we don't get married, we're going to break up. Say, what's your opinion of marriage? What is your opinion of it? And even if he ends up saying, oh, well, I was once divorced and I never want to get married, uh, you just spite his feeling of being masculine by way of this Hermes instinct. And in a few weeks or months, you may hear him say, huh, you know, the strange thing is you got me thinking about marriage. I kind of feel different than I felt. And he's changed. Instead of an ultimatum, you spiked up his level of masculinity in association with a topic of change, a thought-after change. Most men who come to me in a relationship conflict where it's centered on commitment and marriage will tell me that the woman never, ever, ever asks their opinion about marriage. She just tells him what he should think or do about marriage. How about that? 
you might be a woman among women to encourage the Hermes instinct on marriage. Aries, the Aries instinct. Uh, this is a big deal. Uh, this might be one of the most foreign masculine instincts, foreign to you, um, one of the most troublesome and inconceivable, hard to wrap your mind around instincts. But the god of war, violence, and bloodshed. Symbols include the boar, the serpent, the dog, the vulture, the spear, and the shield. He is the son of Zeus and Hera. Um, all the other gods, except Aphrodite, despised him. His Roman name, Mars, gives us the word martial, as in martial law, or martial arts, the god of war. Okay, So isn't it interesting, he's despised by the other gods except for Aphrodite, the goddess of love and the feminine form. Love, the, the, uh, the, the love instinct in women, the mature uh, feminine instinct for sexuality, unconsciously loves the killer instinct in men. And yet the killer instinct in men is despised by all the other parts of the man. It's kind of the last instinct that he wants to whip out, but sometimes has to. Uh, the instinct, it's the killer instinct. Now, I have to talk a lot to men about this um, in our uh, uh, talks for just men. Because we live in a civilized society today, men's killer instincts don't really have a place to be expressed uh, very often these days, except perhaps in sports. And even in business, they're, they're less and less allowed or okay or accepted socially. So where do they go? They have to go somewhere. Uh, if they go underground, they can come back up again in the form of crime, embezzlement, Wall Street. Uh, white-collar crimes and things like this. If they were more allowed, it would be most socially acceptable in the form of what you could say would simply be in disappointing others, in disappointing others. That's basically killing someone else's wishes or dreams or desires. If a man has to render bad news to someone else, um, sometimes I think of, uh, uh, you know, when doctors have to talk to families and say, look, the illness is permanent, to have to be the bearer of bad news, you know, is disappointing someone else. That's, that's the killer instinct. That's the killer instinct in that, and it needs to get expressed. Um, usually, you don't like to be on the receiving end of this instinct in men, although sometimes you are. Um, when a man makes a, quote, executive decision to do something against your wishes, and you're furious at him, but 
he's certain he's right. And maybe you're right. Maybe he's wrong. But a little bit down the road, uh, you find you're really part of you admires him or uh, is attracted to him for having had backbone. You know, even even if he's wrong and you're right, he had backbone. And you kind of like that about him. A part of you kind of likes that about him. That's the Aries instinct. Now, how you could navigate this, there, there are numerous ways. Um, it's not the greatest thing in the world to be on the receiving end of it, as I said. However, if you express admiration and praise over him telling someone else no that defends you both, for example, a troublesome neighbor or a, a threatening stranger on the dark street at night, and he defends you and himself, and you applaud it instead of saying, hey, that's terrible. You should never fight people, or you should never threaten people. Um, he will feel more masculine for you so doing. He'll feel like you really understand men. Okay. There's another way to verbalize this. Um, say we went back to smoking or some bad habit, some uh, some unhealthy habit that we went back to. Um, for you to talk about his fight or for you to talk about his battle, I see this in uh, folks who fight cancer, to fight the good fight. For you to use the word fight or fighter or battle and to cheer him on in battling his smoking, that is appealing to his Aries instinct, the fighter instinct, the killer instinct. Okay? That's another way to use that one. Um, any reaction to that? Because it's such a foreign instinct about men, probably the most foreign to feminine thinking, instinctual animal level feminine thinking. I have a comment or, or maybe it's a question. I don't know. Um, uh-huh. Is that why in in divorce men become such um, animals and at all odds, they uh, uh, no, no matter what's at stake, they have to win, and they become so different than who they were in the marriage. Well, um, it, my you know my first reaction uh, to the to the question is, gosh, from all these things I've seen, both men and women become rabid animals, both of them, in divorce. But the way they get animal is different from each other. 
Um, most of my colleagues and patients who've gone through divorce, both male and female, would say both men and women get quite animalistic with each other, both of them. But a man behaving like an animal might look instinctually a lot of ways different from how a woman looks in being animalistic or, or hostile. You know, it, it's a, a, a it's a, a a combative situation. You know, can't change it. It's it, it's a combative situation. Divorce, the broken contract. Yeah. It's it, it you know in, it incites rage in both uh, males and females. It incites rage. Rage isn't pretty. It's combative. And rage is the flip side of shame. Okay. Um, I have heard of people with amicable divorces. And w what causes that? Well, both the man and the woman have either instinctually or intentionally done things to avoid shaming the other person. The woman has done things to avoid diminishing the man's masculinity, and the man has done things to avoid diminishing the woman's femininity, and then the divorce is amicable. But when they shame each other, the flip side of shame is rage. Rage is shame expressed outwardly instead of just absorbed inwardly. Hmm. You might then say that shame is a vacuum of either masculinity or femininity. It's the absence of masculinity or femininity or vitality. And rage is then the absence of masculinity or femininity. Okay? Yeah, okay. Um, you know, so we could look at either gender as uh, behaving combatively over divorce. Uh, but if we looked at men specifically in that regard, yeah, it would probably be the Aries instinct that gets most pronounced, that comes out in a most pronounced way. And uh, as the god of war, unlike Athena, who is the female goddess of war, and interestingly has both um, war and diplomacy simultaneously on the mind, war and politics simultaneously, the male god of war is more of a bloodlust uh, god, and so is despised by all the other gods. The closest female equivalent to Ares, as far as a bloodlust uh, symbol of shame and rage, would be Medusa, the, the snake-headed goddess who had been raped by Poseidon in the temple of Athena, and Athena cast a blind eye to it. She didn't come to the rescue of her fellow goddess, Medusa. So she was both assaulted and betrayed by other women, which is the lowest of the low uh, strikes uh, to a feminine soul, the most shaming and therefore enraging. Okay? So, uh, you know, in hostile divorce as opposed to amicable divorce, women see the face of Aries in a male 
and men see the face of Medusa in a female. And Medusa turns men to stone. <laughs> right. And and Ares objectifies um, victims of war. Bloodlust. Okay. All right. We're we're to the last major god, and there are numerous minor ones that we cover in other programs as well as teleseminar series. The last uh, male god uh, that you can appeal to is uh, Hephaestus or Vulcan. Okay. Now this guy's sort of uh, an odd man out. Actually, there are two more. There's also Hades I didn't mention, but this guy's odd man out. Um, he's kind of isolative. Um, keeps to himself. He is married to Aphrodite, and yet. Aphrodite cheats on him with Ares, <laughs> whom nobody else likes. Ares is a little bit like the bad boy in men, the bad boy. You know, why do women marry a nice guy, provider, and when they cheat? And by the way, women are nearly caught up to men in frequency of cheating. Men still edge them out by about, I think, 2 to 3%. Most of us would think it's like 80 to 20 um, instead of 47 to 53. But um, uh, his wife is cheating on him, uh, Aphrodite, with Ares. But Hephaestus, or Vulcan, is the master blacksmith and craftsman of the gods. Uh, he makes uh, all of their weapons and their tools. His symbols include fire, the anvil, the axe, the donkey, the hammer, and tongs. He is son of Hera and married to Aphrodite. Um, unlike most divine husbands, he was rarely a uh, rarely a cheat, rarely a philanderer. So it's interesting. He's basically the blue-collar work ethic in men. Um, when men feel like that was a job well done, that's the Hephaestus instinct, uh, the craftsman instinct, which requires patience and discipline uh, at, a, at an occupation or a craft. So it's the blue-collar work ethic, okay? So for you to appeal to this instinct, and this might be one of the most needed but least uh, attention paid to instincts in men in the area of causing change, by getting them to uh, quit an addiction or change a lifestyle um, or eliminate something. Um, the appeal to a job well done after a long effort, the appeal to patience and discipline in a long effort is the Hephaestus instinct, okay? What you could do to encourage this one in getting a man to change would be to get him to imagine the future now or enjoy the future now, okay? If it's a long, long road to quit something or change something or, say, losing weight, that can be you know, a horrible, long experience that requires discipline. To lose 80 pounds, what would that take? It would take some time. 
you got to appeal to the Hephaestus instinct and say, just think what it'll feel like to be 80 pounds lighter. And when will that be? Will it be in a year or nine months? Just imagine how you will feel on this date and set the date and imagine being at that date at 80 pounds lighter. Okay? So you appeal to the blue-collar work ethic. And all along the way to the goal, uh, you give encouragement. Okay? Now remember, I'm describing amplifying these instincts in men as your most powerful force of change. And these are all positive, encouraging, supportive moves here. But remember, our starting point was, does the man even want to change? <laughs> is it even possible for him to change? And is it constitutional? It's biologically part of him and therefore not possible to change? Or is it just a habit or a lifestyle or something uh, less constitutional that really could change and that he can be convinced of changing? That's possible to change. That's when you would use these positive uh, strategies and tactics. You don't use these on someone who has clearly refused to change and says, get lost, I will not change. Okay. Remember, we can't force or ultimatum someone into changing. And then the last one, quickly, is Hades. Um, Hades is the god of the underworld, and he loves isolation and solitude. Uh, this is the force in a man that wants to seek solitude like Batman has a Batcave or Superman has a fortress of solitude. And this is the male need for privacy. And in this privacy, he can uh, most clearly and candidly and honestly look at his shame and look at embarrassment and heal himself from it. Okay? And it's a, it's a tough instinct uh, to deal with as a woman. But it's the man's need to spend some private time working on your proposed change. Okay? If you were going to propose that, uh, that a man, let's do something very superficial, uh, he dresses really sloppy and it does bad things to him at work. You just know that he's being passed over for promotions because he's such a slob, uh, doesn't, you know, do his dry cleaning, um, wears the same clothing every day. Okay? I'm just making it really terrible, but superficial. It's just clothing. You would suggest to him things that might make him look good, look better uh, in in the form of attire. But then you'd go with him to the store, make some suggestions, but then you'd say, all right, you've got the next couple hours. You know, browse around. I'll leave you alone. And then leave him alone. Uh, don't micromanage. Don't be over-involved. And give him ample, total solitude with the change you've proposed. And you will be appealing to the Hades instinct in him, which is a need to have a private space, a workshop for change and a place to heal from shame. Remember, males don't like to publicly show uh, their shame or embarrassment. It's further injuring, injury upon injury. It's 
injuring enough to know that they need to change and can't so far, uh, let alone to also make it public. Okay? All right, so that's the reptilian brain. And we can more rapidly go through the other two areas of the mind. Uh, they're very easy. They're places where both men and women are the same. You know, So the things we learn in these places, I'll take a break, check your questions, see if you have any comments before we do these, but it'll be more rapid at this point. And these are things that both males and females share in their emotions and in their higher brain, their maturity character. Okay, um, we have had a muted person in uh, Montebello, California, so I'm going to unmute you with your raised hand. It was noisy in the background, so I had to mute you. You still there, Montebello, California? We have uh, a submitted question online, too, from D.D. in L.A., who says, how do you as a woman help your man connect more to his masculine instincts? And that's what we just covered. Um, she submitted this a while ago. My guy seems to have internal issues with making progress he wants in life, and I sense his helpful instincts as a man have been somewhat submerged. This has an obvious effect on our relationship. Okay. Well, I hope those uh, Greek gods we just went through that represent specific major masculine instincts, that, that those examples were helpful to you as far as how to language those and communicate them and uh, encourage them in the man. And uh, especially tie them to the desired change that you have. Don't tie them to the current bad habits and their current things you don't like. So, Montebello, California, you still there? Want to say anything? Get your hand up. You raise your hand by hitting star two, by the way. Hello? Okay. Well, we have a lot of people on the line, and uh, this is your chance to comment or ask questions if you like. All right. Um, Let's cover the second general uh, set of influencers uh, that will cause change. These are less powerful than the masculine instincts, um, but more durable than them, somewhat more durable. And they have to do with happiness. They have to do with the self-esteem, okay? Now, this is right out of the Mind OS Mastery course where I have an anger map and an anxiety map, the two negative emotions. A lot of times, these two negative emotions drove somebody to take on a negative habit in the first place. 
I'm going to have to mute you, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and Montebello, because there's lots of noise in the background. So these two negative emotions are really the only two negative emotions that there are, and they're on opposite ends of a spectrum, and that's anger and anxiety. They were often involved in getting a bad habit started in the first place. Anxiety is behind nearly every addiction. Um, smoking, uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, gambling, behind all of them, there's anxiety involved, okay? And on the anxiety map in the MindOS Mastery Program, we learn that the absence of a type of self-esteem called confidence is one of the ways of giving rise to anxiety. The cure to beating anxiety which is a form of unhappiness, is courage. So courage is defined as doing the right thing even if it's uncomfortable. Doing the right thing even if you're afraid. That's courage. Courage is the magic cure for anxiety, for a lack of confidence. The reward you get from doing courageous things, doing the right thing, even if it's uncomfortable, is more confidence in your life. And more confidence is one of the two types of self-esteem. Okay? Somebody with high self-esteem, I have never seen be very anxious or depressed for very long. Somebody with low chronic self-esteem, chronic low self-esteem, I have never seen be very happy for very long. Okay? So to cause change, not only should you associate pleasure with the desired change, but happiness with the desired change. Pleasure is physical. You can feel it in your bones. It's a state of existing, feeling vitality in your body and your mind. Happiness is an emotion. It's high self-esteem. Confidence is one of the two types of self-esteem in our system. The other type of self-esteem is well-being. And that's on the anger map. The anger map is about anger, depression, aggression, or violence. And finally, assertiveness is the cure. Assertiveness is what raises your level of well-being. And well-being is a feeling of having enough, having enough resources. You might notice that the Poseidon instinct in men is all about owning resources and acquiring resources. So the Poseidon instinct in men has a lot to do with them feeling um, more full of well-being. Your contribution in this area would be about being maternal. Um, it would be about asking the man what he needs, what he lacks, and what he would want instead of what he has. And instead of being sad or depressed, and instead of being a hothead about the things he lacks, the cure is assertiveness. And assertiveness is going out and getting your needs met, filling up on the things you need. It might also be involved in what preconditions would you have to get in place in order to make the change that you desire. This would correlate with that, that old stage of change called preparation, the one that comes before action. 
in the stages of change model. So well-being is about having enough of what you need to accomplish some, something, to feel full. Well-being plus confidence equals self-esteem, and self-esteem equals happiness. Okay? So the twin uh, traits of character that you would encourage in a man in the process of change that would produce happiness for him, positive emotions, would be encouraging him, literally, <laughs> to have courage to do what is right, even if it's difficult. And then secondly, to be assertive, to go after what he wants without hurting others or using others to get it. Courage and assertiveness need to be a part of change so that there's not just pleasure but also happiness. And this is a bit more durable than the things that cause higher masculinity, but uh, not quite as powerful as those things. Okay? So you might wonder with the man, uh, let's say the, the desired change is to be more commitment-minded. You could, in your conversation with him, where you've asked him his opinion, which is the Hermes instinct, about marriage, what's your opinion of marriage today? You might follow that up with, what would you need? What would you need to feel equipped for marriage? What would you need in a marriage? That would encourage well-being, a sense of having enough of what one needs to feel non-depressed and not angry, to feel full, to feel I have enough, I have well-being. How about a man who faces daunting odds in causing change? Like maybe um, the change you seek is uh, more stable finances and the economy is tough. Well, you may have to encourage the man or help him discover his own courage, which is doing the things that need to get done, even if they're difficult, to do the right thing, even if it is scary or anxiety-provoking. Example, a lot of people I've seen have to make this choice. And courage is a decision, by the way. Anybody can make a decision. So we always have courage available to us. It's just a decision. No matter how scary it is, you can be terrified and still be courageous. Isn't that interesting? You can be terrified and still courageous. You yourself might feel afraid to desire change in the man or to express your desire for change in the man. You may need courage to even approach the issue. Okay? But courage is just a decision. That means we have an unlimited potential amount of courage that we can do. So here's what I've seen happen very frequently in today's economy. A lot of people have had to move They've had to completely relocate cities uh, to find greener pastures as far as employment. That can take a lot of courage, uh, both on the part of the woman and the man. Say that the man uh, is unemployed and the desired change is that he has a stable job. You may need to encourage him 
that you will move together to the greener pastures, to the city that has more opportunity, even though you have to leave friends behind, and that's difficult. Okay? That would cause confidence to result for you both if it took courage on both of your parts uh, to be involved in that change, that economic change, you both would come out of it more confident, which is the other half of self-esteem. Well-being and confidence are the two parts of self-esteem. And you will both be happier. Okay? So happiness or elevated self-esteem is the second uh, general area of influencing change. The first one was masculinity, if we're talking about a man, and femininity, if we're talking about a woman. Okay? The third area is uh, the intellectual area, and it's the most durable but the least powerful force of change. The most durable but the least powerful. And this is an appeal to maturity and character and how one sees oneself in terms of doing what is right and doing what is mature and doing what is noble and of high character, having good boundaries. So we get to the second, we come full circle literally by getting back to boundaries, which is where we started, because boundaries are what mean everything we do is voluntary in a relationship, including change. But boundaries, uh, lacking boundaries, are the second part of most addictions. Anxiety plus poor boundaries are probably the two biggest components that uh, lead to addictions, bad habits, destructive habits. So encouraging boundaries is a crucial part of um, encouraging doing right and success as influencers on the man, appealing to his more noble sensibilities and ethics, doing what's right. Part of having boundaries involves uh, learning to say no. Okay, In the Mind OS Mastery Program, I talk a lot about the concept of holes in our boundaries. When we have holes in our boundaries, those are places where we um, don't recognize where we end and others begin or we don't recognize where our control ends and our lack of control begins. So working with a man on having the bird's eye view, on seeing some things maybe he can't see about himself, helps his boundaries and reinforces and strengthens your boundaries. Um, if he's a smoker and you're not, here's where it's it's good and okay and useful for you to show your differences and say, you know what, you're a smoker, I'm not, so don't smoke around me. I don't mean that to be hurtful. I mean it as a preference. I'm letting you know what I prefer. I love you. I'm attracted to you. I want the best for you. I want you to feel like a man. I want you to be happy. But you can't smoke around me. It's my preference. It's my boundary. Okay? The reason I get to this uh, category of influencers last 
is because if you lead with the first two, with pleasure and happiness, with elevated masculinity and elevated self-esteem, well, then your message is going to be heard now because you've already used the two most powerful influencers that are very positive, and now you're getting to the putting limits on the man. The man who already, you know, wants to change or is willing, is open to learning more. Now you can put some boundaries in the picture and say, you can't smoke in the house, okay? I love you, attracted to you, want the best for you. You know, you're the man in my life, but you can't smoke in the house. Thank you. Somebody had something to say there? Noise in the background? scan Medical? Okay. No, not me. Okay. <laughs> um, Phoenix, Arizona, I guess is what was going on there. All right. Um, you, you get this? We're to the least powerful but the most durable, the most long-lasting, reliable uh, set of influencers, which is appealing to maybe both the man and your own sense of uh, doing the noble and right thing, doing the mature thing. Too often when we want other people to change, we lead with this instead of ending with it. We shame people. We say, you know, you're bad. You're a bad person for smoking. Well, that'll really work. If you won't marry me, then let's quit this. This is stupid. This is a stupid relationship. Well, that's appealing. You know, that, that makes the person wonder, really? You don't really think that much of me then. Why Why would we marry? Why are we even together? Why would we even date if I'm so worthless to you? That's not very appealing. So we need to not lead with this area, the appeal to what's right and intellectual and rule-based. And by the way, at this point, we have crossed out of the unconscious the most powerful force of both change and bad habits, and we've crossed into the conscious mind now, awake and aware. And by the way, this is also where we started in the form of observing ego, the first prime core skill of personal growth that without which there cannot be growth or change because there's no curiosity or self-observation. This is where it's located in the higher brain, in the cerebral cortex, in our conscious mind. When it is turned off, observing ego, we're running on instinct, only instinct and only animal behavior. Okay? When I talked about all these instincts, masculine and feminine instincts, as being glowingly positive, I didn't mean they were glowingly positive in isolation, <laughs> as if that's all we are. Now, if that's all we were, then we would be animals. And that can be kind of ugly, can it? It's what the lady was talking about when she mentioned divorce. How can men look like such animals during divorce? It might be that they're running just with the Aries instinct and nothing else. No self-esteem or love or friendship. No boundaries or ethics. You know, do anything it takes to win. Not paying attention to right or wrong. 
just running with the animal instinct of Aries, the, the, the bloodthirsty instinct, the killer instinct. That's what's ugly, okay? But what makes people do wrong or be bad is not their masculine or feminine instincts. It's the absence of these higher-brained features of psychology, the absence of boundaries that makes people bad, the absence of wisdom or ethics that makes people bad. It's not the presence of masculine or feminine instincts, the absence of these other things, boundaries, ethics, which means that being bad is neither male nor female. It's just human and immature. Okay? So let's get to the last details of this um, higher-brained influence on habits and look at the conscious intellectual part of it all using habits as the thing we want to change. Um, if habits are a set of instincts, or I'm sorry, if habits are a set of decisions and all decisions are either destructive or constructive, then there are destructive habits and constructive habits. If you wanted to change a destructive habit or get rid of it, the best thing to do, most rational thing to do, would be to flip it from destructive to constructive. Okay? Uh, for example, I, I think of such stories and films as, um, you remember Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can? Uh, that, that was a story about a real man who uh, swindled people. I think he swindled banks and airlines, and he pretended to be a pilot, and he was sort of a, um, a Walter Mitty, you know, pretending to be all these things that he's not. He was a fraud. And I think he went to jail, but then uh, upon leaving jail, he became a world's expert on Internet security and on bank fraud. So he turned the skills of a negative, destructive lifestyle, let's say, and set of habits into a positive and constructive set of habits. A lot of the times, the, the seeds of things you'd like a man to change that are destructive and negative are also highly useful when redirected into a constructive thing. Okay? And there are two twin forces from Mind OS Mastery that guide every decision we make. One is our ethics, our sense of right and wrong. Are we doing right or wrong to others? And the other is our intuition or shrewdness or sense of worldly wisdom. Have we chosen the right environment in which to do something? Is, and is the environment being right or wrong back to us? If you want to set up the best possible conscious, on-purpose, planned-out scenario for change, you need to choose a good environment to have it happen in. That's one of the reasons in uh, some of the 12-step programs on addictions, they talk about how the person will have to change their environmental choices, which includes maybe their set of friends and the places that they spend time, maybe even the, the city they live in. Change the environment. 
change the way you behave. You may need to work with the man together on changing the environment to a more constructive environment, but one that is still appealing, uh, that is still masculinizing and feminizing for you and encouraging a self-esteem. In other words, it has resources, meets both of your needs, but also offers some challenges, a chance for courage. It gives you confidence. So the environment matters to switch a destructive habit to a constructive habit. But circling all the way back to the beginning, how to get change started, we've got to have observing ego, um, being self-aware, being your own best friend and coach and advisor in real time. It's sort of like being the narrator of your own life. Like narrating your life as it's happening and commenting on it. It's like self-talk. And when you have that skill going, you can literally make the unconscious nature of a destructive habit conscious and in your awareness. Now you're up in the higher brain. You can look at it and say, is that benefiting me? Maybe not. And you can show the man how redirecting it towards something positive might be even more rewarding. The problem is the difference between what is destructive and constructive is that destructive or win-lose behaviors tend to be quick fixes and are very appealing to our instincts. We get them instantly, get the reward instantly, whereas constructive things take time and patience and discipline. Destructive things tend to be selfish instead of self-respecting. Constructive things are self-respecting, but also are win-win. They're good to both us and others. It's a spirit of sharing. Destructive things have poor boundaries to them and poor ethics, poor conscience, and naivete. Constructive things have good ethics, have discipline, take time, and are shared once again. So it's harder to do what's constructive and easier to do what's destructive. That's why if you've appealed to the masculine instincts and your own feminine instincts, self-esteem and elevated it, confidence and well-being up to now, and associate those and tie those to the desired change, even though the desired change will take more work because it's constructive and more discipline and more effort, maybe the hephaestus instinct is really important here. A job well done, but a laborious, uh, difficult job. It'll be more appealing in the end than the quick fix. And you make it very visual and real. One of the things we talk about in the Seven Sense program uh, when we learn about romance and sexual fantasies is that women's sexual fantasies tend to be far more about sensations and sensory things, the senses. Male fantasies tend to be far more about just the visual. So it may be a challenge to envision yourself and help the man envision a visual picture of what will the future look like instead of more uh, 
intellectual descriptions of how the future would look like. Okay? Our example of the $2,400 a year you would save by stopping smoking, instead of saying, hey, look at this number on this chart, 2400 make it more visual and say, look at this picture of the Bahamas and our $2,400 vacation we will have here. Or look at this picture of an Apple computer. Or let's go physically look at an Apple computer. Or go to, well, I guess there aren't travel agents anymore. <laughs> Show how old I am. I'll go online and look at uh, Hotels.com and find pictures of the Bahamas and our awesome $2,400 vacation. So get very visual consciously and on purpose in stimulating the man to see the long-term benefit of uh, the, the heavy labor involved in a constructive new habit built from his old destructive quick-fix habit. The key is observing ego. Turn on observing ego. You can spot the negative destructive habit, learn about it, stimulate these influencers and changers, and then start to purposely, consciously, on purpose, do the new constructive behaviors. The first few times he does them, they'll take a lot of effort, conscious effort. That means observing ego is turned on. But with time, it becomes habit. And, and a habit then has become unconscious again. Now you have an unconscious, constructive habit that you don't have to keep working over with observing ego as a skill. Example, simple example. When I first moved to Chicago, I started working in a clinic with a really long, narrow hallway. There was a big basket of fresh um, donuts, Krispy Kreme donuts, mind you, always in the hallway. I'd walk by to get my next patient after patient, walk by these donuts, unconsciously grab one, unconsciously eat it before I reach the end of the hall. And in my first year in Chicago, I think I gained about 40 pounds. Destructive habit related to the environment, related to it being unconscious, not conscious and aware and observing ego turned on, and I gained that poundage. Then I had a wake-up call. A... Hollywood producer said, you're fat. You're never going to be on TV. And I wanted to be on TV to get the message out about these programs. You know, I was shocked. I thought of myself as thin because I always had been thin until Chicago got its hands on me. And I realized, wow, looked in the mirror. I was like, oh, my God, I'm fat. I can't believe it. I didn't realize it. I'm fat. I'm fat. I'm fat. Whoa. That got me to want to change. At the very least, it turned on observing ego, the awareness that there is a need for a change. This female producer helped me by pointing it out, helping me turn on my observing ego. I realized there was a need to change. I had to really work, be really disciplined, and turn on observing ego every time I walked down that hallway further and had to consciously decide to not touch a donut every time. It was a lot of work at first. It took a number of weeks 
to catch myself in the act of reaching for a donut and not do it. But observing ego worked. I was able to not grab a donut for enough weeks that that then became the new habit. Walking past the donuts became unconscious and a habit. And maybe a constructive habit. Or maybe just a neutral behavior. But at least not a destructive donut-eating behavior. Okay? And that's higher-brained. And that's success-driven. And part of the success in making this change uh, with this person is to encourage uh, a specific conscious goal. Okay, this is the last part. And this is usually what people start with, but this is the last part. This is where you write down the stop date. You write down the poundage they will lose and by when. It's all conscious and planned. And you make a calendar and a chart of the change. But now you're, notice how now this will work. Do you ever notice like in your own life, if you ever tried to lose weight or diet, that if you made a chart or a calendar first, it doesn't work? It's not inspiring. It's not impassioning. It doesn't make you feel more feminine, more alive, and like a real woman to just see some calendar. But if you first felt passion and an elevation of your femininity, if the man in question felt more masculine first and then happier, like you have more than enough of what it takes. You have all the resources that it would take. And you are daring to use courage. It's going to be scary. It's going to take discipline. But I can do this. I'm going to try and be courageous. Then you get to that calendar and all those intellectual strategies and plans, and now you're backed by vitality and passion and feeling alive and excited about the change and happy, too, and with enough resources to do it and with enough of butterflies in your stomach that you know you can beat, that you can be courageous. Now you're ready for that calendar and for that, that, that date that you will quit and accomplish the goal or lose the weight or make the change. Okay? We've had it backwards all along. But that's how to change a man, and that's the only way to help a man change if he can. Any comments or questions? Those of you on the call live, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Robert S. is the number, or the medical, and medical. Any any last comments? All the lines are now open. Okay, well, thank you all. Uh, we follow up with all of our programs on the weekly teleseminar series. 
called On Demand, Women's Happiness On Demand, the On Demand program. It's free from one to three months upon ordering any of our programs, and thereafter it's only $17 a month for two hours together every week as a group. Okay, same format. We also have forums as part of that program with over 15,000 topics and over 2,500 women participating, including our coach moderators and myself answering questions online, online coaching 24-7. So that's the on-demand program. Uh, we can continue this discussion there or in the forums, uh, but I really appreciate you having been a part of this program, How to Get a Man to Change from womenshappiness.com and Women's Happiness Magazine. Thank you all. And these record, this recording will be available to you immediately after we're done for download. Okay? Thanks. The moderator has left the conference.